Hey there, comrades. You are now officially in the home stretch of our capital journey. There are only three episodes after this one, and in my opinion, the last lesson of episode 12 is definitely the easiest and the most fun. So you're closer to the summit than you think. So far, we've learned about relative and absolute surplus value. And in this episode, we begin to see how there are different strategies that capital employs. Within this first bit, we also clarify the generally misunderstood definition of productive labor and how this relates to contemporary organizing. And finally, we look at the often neglected chapters on wages or the different price forms that the value of labor power takes and how each impacts the class struggle and the positions of workers and capitalists, as well as how they hide the reality of exploitation or surplus value. This episode has a lot of lessons that we can apply to how we agitate and organize today. So good luck, comrades. You're beginning to hear alarm about a second mortgage shock. Last month alone, more than 70,000 families lost their homes. Stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The coronavirus pushing unemployment to its highest level since the Great Depression. American billionaires have gained a trillion dollars in wealth just this year. Millions of Americans are receiving food stamp benefits for the first time. Would you swap working for a company in favor of living in a communist country? A surprising number of millennials in the US would do precisely that. Hey comrades, welcome to episode nine where we're covering parts five and six of the book or chapters 16 through 22. Some of these sections are glossed over sometimes because in many ways they're transitional, but there's still a lot of important material and insight in here. So let's start then with chapter 16. In the last two parts, we discussed the production of absolute and then relative surplus value. And so in this chapter, Marx is bringing them together. He begins the chapter by defining the labor process and remember that the labor process operates at different levels of abstraction. And here Marx is bringing it down to its concrete and historical manifestation under capitalism and defining productive labor in particular. So back in chapter seven, when he discussed labor in general, the definition of productive labor was any kind of labor that produced a use value of any kind, but it's not so under capitalism. As capitalism develops, he says, the category of productive labor both widens and narrows. First, it widens because labor becomes collective. So he says, the product ceases to be the direct product of the individual and becomes a social product produced in common by a collective laborer. On the other hand, the category of productive labor narrows because it is exclusively guided by the production of surplus value. He says, that laborer alone is productive who produces surplus value for the capitalist and thus works for the self-expansion of capital. This definition applies to any industry or labor process in which capital is advanced to be augmented or to be expanded. So as he writes on the second page, even outside factory production, for example, a school, we see that, quote, a schoolmaster is a productive laborer when, in addition to belaboring the heads of his scholars, he works like a horse to enrich the school proprietor. That the latter has laid out his capital in a teaching factory instead of in a sausage factory does not alter the relation, end quote. So it doesn't matter if the production process produces a good, like a physical commodity or a service. 
We could also say that it applies to intellectual labor, knowledge work, and so on and so forth. And of course, a lot of educational researchers have done a lot with this equation of a school factory to a sausage factory. So it's a conceptual category and also a real one. Capital is about the production of surplus value and not all forms of labor produce surplus value. But this doesn't mean that only surplus value producing labor is necessary for capitalism or that only that kind of labor is necessary or relevant to the struggle. Remember that this volume is about the production of capital. So Marx is telling us what counts as productive labor under capitalism, and it isn't a judgment to say that it's productive. And in fact, he writes that to be a productive laborer is therefore not a piece of luck, but a misfortune. And again, it doesn't mean that the struggle is only about productive labor or that organizing should focus only on those workers involved in surplus value production, or that those workers should be a higher focus than others, or that there's a greater potential for resistance there. Capital needs more than just workers producing surplus value. Consider that capital has to not just be produced, but it has to be realized well, which means that it has to be sold. So while cashiers aren't productive workers, they're absolutely essential to capitalism, if there was no one to ring you out at the grocery market, no surplus value would be realized. And that's just one example. We've also seen that capital needs the state. So state workers are absolutely critical, as are ideological workers in society or those who work to reinforce and spread capitalist ideology. And as we'll see in the next episode, when we get to the reproduction of capital, it really includes everyone in the production and reproduction of life and society itself. So with organizing, the task is not to proceed from who directly produces surplus value, but instead we have to ask, where are the potentials for struggle in any given historical moment? And recently in the United States, for example, we've seen really heroic and massive strikes by public school teachers who are state employees, not directly producing surplus value. But they're strategically located to disrupt the system because of how central schooling is. Just think about how many people are involved in schooling, from teachers and bus drivers to janitors and administrators, as well as how many people rely on schooling and schools. It's one place that unites such a broad section of the working class, including parents and guardians, community members, and so on. So we have productive labor as producing surplus value, and next Marx goes to the two forms of surplus value, absolute and relative, and he returns to formal and real subjection, which correspond to absolute and relative surplus value respectively. In the course of this development, Marx says, quote, the formal subjection is replaced by the real subjection of labor to capital, end quote. And this happens when dead labor or machinery takes on the active role in the production process, making living labor serve dead labor and thereby increasing capital's command over workers. But if formal subjection is about absolute surplus value and real subjection about relative surplus value, Marx notes, they're obviously distinct, but they're also the same. They're about surplus value production. So he says that relative surplus value is absolute in the sense that it lengthens the part of the working day that the worker produces for the capitalist by reducing necessary labor time. And absolute value is relative because it compels an increase in the productiveness of labor. Yet if we consider this identity from the behavior of capital, he says, it disappears. Instead, the difference, quote, makes itself felt whenever there's a question of raising the rate of surplus value, end quote. So in other words, sometimes capital will try to get absolute surplus value and other times it'll try to get relative surplus value. They're each sort of class tactics in its arsenal of exploitation. If workers can fight to limit the working day, 
capital will go to relative surplus value. But if capital can lengthen the working day, either by peeling back legislation or by destroying the entire concept of the working day like it's done with the gig economy, then it will produce absolute surplus value. There's another important implication, which is that because capital is about surplus value production, the changes capital imposes in those industries which produce surplus value will bleed over into other industries. So increasing the intensity of labor, for example, might originate in a factory, but it's something that literally every worker is faced with regardless of their position vis-a-vis surplus value. So at this point, Marx looks at the relationship between capitalist production, history in the earth, and natural conditions. He does this to address dominant ideas in political economy that locate value in the land and the soil. But he clarifies that surplus value doesn't arise from the earth, although environmental conditions can impact the quantity of surplus value. If the soil is really rich, it will increase it. If the soil is really poor, it'll decrease it, for example. As he says on page 361 online, 480 International, and 647 Penguin, quote, Besides, capital, with its accompanying relations, springs up from an economic soil that is the product of a long process of development. The productiveness of labor that serves as its foundation and starting point is a gift, not of nature, but of a history embracing thousands of centuries, end quote. And these include previous modes of production. Remember that there's no purely external nature or earth that's untransformed by a relationship to people. But he does note that if environmental conditions are unfavorable to surplus production, it will work in part to inspire the need for developing ways to overcome this. Now here, Marx is sometimes accused of Eurocentrism or environmental determinism, but that's never really made sense to me because he gives examples from European countries like Holland and Lombardy, which is now Italy, but also from Egypt, India, and Persia. And in the end of the chapter, he wages a polemic against Ricardo and John Stuart Mill because they never understood the difference between labor and labor power. If you think labor is a source of value, that's like saying value is a source of value. So while Ricardo recognized that labor produced profit, he didn't understand surplus labor and surplus labor power. Mill, for his part, confused the length and value of labor with the length and value of its products and viewed profit as something eternal. So the essence of the critique here is that neither took the actual specificity of the capitalist mode of production into account. Thus, he ends with this scathing critique in the last sentence of the chapter, quote, on the level plain, simple mounds look like hills, and the imbecile flatness of the present bourgeoisie is to be measured by the altitude of its great intellects, end quote. And so with the rest of part five, Marx is moving from value to price. We know that value is socially necessary labor time, but it has to have some objective external representation, which is money, as he established in part one of the book. Chapter 17 looks at the changes in the price of labor power and surplus value under different circumstances. The relative magnitudes of surplus value will be determined by three things the length of the working day, the normal intensity of labor, and the productiveness of labor. The main point here is that if surplus value can vary with these three elements, then these three elements are three different ways capital can use to increase surplus value. Now, in the first section, there's an important point he makes about the productivity of labor. This is page 369 online, 490 International, and 659 Penguin, where he writes, quote, The value of labor power is determined by the value of a given quantity of necessities. 
It is the value and not the mass of these necessities that varies with the productiveness of labor. It is, however, possible that owing to an increase of productiveness, both the laborer and the capitalist may simultaneously be able to appropriate a greater quantity of these necessities without any change in the price of labor power or in surplus value, end quote. So in other words, if the overall social pie in terms of use values is increasing, Marx is saying it's entirely feasible for there to be some kind of mutual benefit whereby both capitalists and workers get more commodities. This is important because it shows that the standard of living for workers can increase while exploitation remains the same, or even if the prices of wages fall. But on that same page, just above the previous quote, he notes that this quote depends on the relative weight, which the pressure of capital on one side and the resistance of labor on the other throws into the scale, end quote. So it's still a matter of class struggle. Toward the end of the chapter, on page 373 online, 496 International, and 667 Penguin, when discussing an increasing intensity and productivity of labor with a shortening of the working day, he contrasts work under capitalism to work under communism. If the working day were brought down to only include necessary labor time, there would, of course, be no surplus labor. And so, quote, only by suppressing the capitalist form of production could the length of the working day be reduced to the necessary labor time. But even in that case, the latter would extend its limits. On the one hand, because the notion of means of subsistence would considerably expand and the laborer would lay claim to an altogether different standard of life. On the other hand, because a part of what is now surplus labor would then count as necessary labor. I mean, the labor of forming a fund for reserve and accumulation, end quote. So under communism, the definition of work would change and surplus labor wouldn't be surplus value. It would be an excess of values needed for society at large at present. For example, to provide for those unable to work so that we could achieve to each according to their need. The fund for accumulation would be a fund for the expanding needs and desires of the people, the earth, and its inhabitants. So necessary labor time could expand because we're working to fulfill more and more of society's desires. And then in the next paragraph, he writes again about capitalist overproduction and its wastefulness, as well as the contradiction between economy in the individual workplace and wastefulness in society. Quote, the capitalist mode of production, while it enforces economy in each individual business, also begets, by its anarchic system of the competition, the most outrageous squandering of labor power and of the social means of production, not to mention the creation of a vast number of functions at present indispensable, but in themselves superfluous, end quote. And he ends in the last sentence by noting that under capitalism, quote, Free time is produced for one class by the conversion of the whole lifetime of the masses into labor time, end quote. So again, the control and sovereignty of time is central to the class struggle. Workers aren't free to determine how we use our time. Our time is spent working so that capitalists can have that freedom. In chapter 18, Marx looks at different ways to formulate the rate of surplus value. Bourgeois political thought expresses it in a few different ways as surplus labor over the working day, or as surplus value over the value of the product, or as surplus product over total product. In each of these, surplus value and exploitation is not expressed or it's falsely expressed. 
By confusing labor with labor power, a bourgeois economy claims the capitalists buy labor and in this way claim that they pay for all labor, but they only pay for labor power. And so at the end of the chapter, he affirms that capital isn't just the command over labor, as Smith, Ricardo, and Mill argued, but command over unpaid labor. And this, again, is the innovation of the theory of surplus value. In part six of the book, Marx looks at wages, or the price form of the value of labor power. He looks at various ways that wages are paid and the different functions they serve for both capitalists and for workers. And so he's transitioning from speaking about the value of labor power to its price. He begins in chapter 19 by observing that, quote, on the surface of bourgeois society, the wage of the laborer appears as the price of labor, a certain quantity of money that is paid for a certain quantity of labor, end quote. So it looks like wages pay for labor. But as he says, because the commodity labor power must at all events exist before it's sold, the wage is the quantity of living labor necessary for its production. This is what we might call the wage fetish, or the way in which it appears that we are paid for what we produce, when in reality we're only paid for the commodity of labor power. Thus, a few pages later, Marx writes that, quote, labor is the substance and the imminent measure of value, but has itself no value. In the expression value of labor, the idea of value is not only completely obliterated, but actually reversed. It is an expression as imaginary as the value of the earth, end quote. So again, it makes no sense to speak of the value of labor because it's like speaking about the value of value. It's a tautology. But this is often what happens in bourgeois political economy. And he then proceeds to critique the idea that supply and demand determine the value of labor power. All supply and demand do, he says, is explain the changes of prices relative to values. Thus, quote, if demand and supply balance, the oscillation of price cease. All other conditions remain in the same. But then demand and supply also cease to explain anything, end quote. So here Marx is affirming his theory of surplus value, which rests on the commodity of labor power and the antagonism between its value and use value. Supply and demand can tell us why prices fluctuate, but they can't tell us why some commodities are more valuable than other commodities. Only value as socially necessary labor time can do that. So Derek, what is an example of the price of something fluctuating as opposed to its value? So the best examples are stocks, right? I mean, stock prices are supposed to match the production taking place. So if a stock increases, the company is supposed to be making profits, right? Which means it's realizing more value. Sometimes the stock price is below the value produced by a firm. That's when you want to buy it. And other times it's way above it, right? Way above it. There's a constant fluctuation. But the idea goes back to our discussion about money and price and the role it plays in capitalism. So value, remember, is immaterial in that you can't see it. You can't see the exact socially necessary labor time required for the production of anything. And you can't see exactly how much society needs anything at any given moment. So prices are always fluctuating. And whenever you see different prices for the same thing, there's a divergence between price and value. Now, sometimes it reflects the fact that a merchant was able to buy something cheaper from the producer because they could buy more of it, because they have a special relationship or an exclusive deal. Other times it has to do with the fact that 
the producer has produced something below its social value at what Marx called the individual value. And so the merchant buys it somewhere in between and then sells it either at its real socially necessary labor time, its real value, or somewhere above what it paid for it and how much it can sell it for. So the capitalist form of the wage by nature hides the existence of surplus value, surplus labor, and therefore exploitation. Marx contrasts this with slavery, where it looks like the slave produces only for the master, but the slave also produces part of their own means of subsistence. And another different example is corvée labor, in which the peasant would work part of the year for the Lord and part of the year for themselves. And so in the corvée system, the existence of surplus labor is clear. But it's different with the wage. And also because we, quote unquote, freely enter into the labor contract, it's also different from slavery. Because we get paid for a day's work or a week's work or an hour's work, it looks as if all the labor we've expended is paid for. All labor appears as paid labor, as he says. So the wage has an important ideological role to play under capitalism. And as he says on page 381 online, 505 International and 680 Penguin, quote, hence we may understand the decisive importance of the transformation of value and price of labor power into the form of wages or into the value and price of labor itself. This phenomenal form, which makes the actual relation invisible and indeed shows the direct opposite of that relation, forms the basis of all the juridical notions of both labor and capitalist, of all the mystifications of the capitalist mode of production, of all its illusions as to liberty, of all the apologetic shifts of the vulgar economists, end quote. So we see that the ideological mystification and the juridical superstructure arises out of and justifies this material basis. It's literally the opposite of what's happening. So as such, the legal system under capitalism is a mystification of what's really happening, and therefore, we can't appeal to it other than for reforms. In chapter 20, he looks at time wages, and in chapter 21, he looks at peace wages. And these are two dominant form that wages take. In these chapters, Marx is showing first how the day is still the basic unit of work, but there's still different forms that wages can take. These forms, however, don't alter the essence of labor power or the labor theory of value or surplus value, but they have different functions for the capitalist and the worker, and they also speak to capital's flexibility. So chapter 20 is on time wages. Time wages, or wages based on certain hours of work rather than an entire day or week, are still based on the working day. They represent, as he puts it, quote, the quotient of the value of a day's labor power divided by the number of hours of the average working day, end quote. So if the average working day is eight hours and you work two hours, the two hours will be only a portion of that eight hours. The benefit of time wages for capitalists is that it frees up capital because they don't have to pay a week's wage, but only for the hours of work the capitalist needs from them. He speaks to the way that capital benefits from this on page 385 online, 511 international, and 686 penguin. 
Capital can, quote, annihilate all regularity of employment and according to its own convenience, caprice, and the interest of the moment, make the most enormous overwork alternate with relative or absolute cessation of work, end quote. So the irregularity of time wages allows for a greater domination of capital over the time of the worker. But if you work more, you get paid more. So again, it looks like you're getting paid for your actual work. And this includes overtime pay. But what is overtime pay? Mark shows it's really a way that the worker can get a portion of the previous surplus labor time. But it's not just the worker who might not see this, but the capitalist also. So in the last paragraph, he writes, quote, the capitalist does not know that the normal price of labor also includes a definite quantity of unpaid labor. The category surplus labor time does not exist at all for him since it is included in the normal working day, which he thinks he has paid for in the day's wages, end quote. He does, however, know about overtime. So the capitalist thinks that overtime is a nice gift to the worker. So with time wages, the capitalist is able to basically restructure the lives of workers so that, for example, we're on call and sort of, you know, at the beck and call of capital rather than having some regularity of employment and therefore consistency in the money that we make and the commodities that we can buy. On a separate note, you had brought up the notion of free time earlier, and I can't help but think of Jeff Bezos, who said that he wakes up slowly, takes his time in the morning, and makes only three decisions a day. What a difference between how Amazon workers spend their time during the day. Can you talk about free time and how the capitalists spend their free time versus how workers spend their free time? So the two basic elements of the world are time and space, right? And the class struggle is really a struggle for the power to determine how workers and capitalists use time and space, right? How workers can move in our own lives. So workers' free time is often just time to rest in order to get ready to work again. But the capitalist time is really free time, right? They can really do whatever they want. The same goes for moving through space, right? Workers can't just decide where they want to live and go, but capitalists can. And capital has increasingly colonized more and more of our time, right? I mean, especially with gig work, precarious work, zero-hour contract work. But even so many of us are working even when we're not at work or not supposed to be working because the boundaries between work time and lifetime have become increasingly blurred. I mean, especially with technological changes like having work email on your iPhone. So yeah, I can wait until I'm at work the next day to respond. And even according to my contract, that's what I should do. But that's not what's expected of me. And if I don't respond as quickly as possible, even if it's, you know, right before I'm about to go to bed, I'm basically risking my job because there's other workers who will take that on. You can even think about relaxation apps, right? Meditation apps, yoga apps. Even if we think that we're doing this for our own health, we're really doing this to deal with the stress of work and life under capitalism. So even when we think we're relaxing, we're really reproducing our own labor power.
Chapter 21 is on peace wages or when workers get paid for each commodity or service that they produce. The peace wage doesn't alter the nature of the wage, he says, but again, certain wage forms can be beneficial to the capitalist. So we just saw that time wages allow the capitalist to deregulate the working day and only employ workers when they need them. They don't have to lay them off when they don't need them. They just don't hire them. They just don't call them into work. Peace wages are another good example because in this instance, when you're paid for what you produce during an hour or a day, and not for the hour or the day itself, you can end up sort of disciplining yourself. You want to and need to make more money from work, and so you can end up increasing the intensity of your own labor. And Marx says this on 391 Online, 519 International, and 695 Penguin, quote, given peace wage, it naturally is in the personal interest of the laborer to strain his labor power as intensely as possible. This enables the capitalist to raise more easily the normal degree or intensity of labor, end quote. So an individual worker's wage can increase while the average stays the same. However, workers can also be driven then to compete. And when this happens, the overall wages are lowered. So workers can paradoxically reduce the value of their own labor power in this way. And this is another way, besides technological changes, the capitalist can produce relative surplus value. Sometimes you see this at work where the workers who are the most productive are sort of highlighted, maybe they're rewarded more in monetary or other ways, and then it becomes sort of a competition to match that. But of course, the productivity of labor then continually increases, and therefore the value of labor power overall continually decreases. But on the other hand, peace wages render exploitation more apparent to the worker. If you're paid for the product produced and not a more sort of abstract labor power, you can tell the difference really easily between what you're paid for and the price of the commodity or service that the capitalist sells it for. So peace wages can work against the wage fetish and help the worker realize exploitation. So say I'm a barber and for each haircut I give, the capitalist gets $20 for it, but they pay me $10 for it, right? It's really clear that I'm not getting paid for the value of what I'm actually producing. And so therefore the exploitation of my labor is transparent to me. And both peace and time wages are more precarious, and thus they made a comeback over the last few decades as part of the pushback against the labor movement and the struggles that worked to establish something like a normal working day, working week, and working life, including the weekend. So many workers today work for peace and time wages. Adjunct professors, for example, get paid in peace wages. They get paid for each class they teach. And they're compelled to teach as many classes as possible, which pushes down the overall value of labor power, including the value of other professors who aren't adjunct. Or again, think about gig workers who get paid similarly. They get paid for each ride, for each delivery, for each service rendered. Other examples are agricultural workers who get paid by the bushel or by the weight of what they pick during the day. But of course, workers can push back trying to get over on the capitalists by working fast but sloppy. So there can be a need for inspectors to oversee the work. But what's interesting about the gig economy and the emergence of customer feedback 
from student opinion surveys and college courses to driver ratings on Uber and Lyft and so on, is that this is basically the capitalist outsourcing the cost of supervision or quality control to the customer, who in most cases is actually a worker. In the last chapter, chapter 22, Marx looks very briefly at national differences in wages. Now, the basic thrust here is that the value of labor power will vary between countries because of variations in those elements that factor into its value. Natural conditions, costs of social reproduction, including training and education, the rearing of children, the overall moral attitudes or social attitudes about what the worker's life is actually worth and the state of the class struggle. Additionally, though, different levels of productivity and labor intensity will impact the value of labor power, but also, as we saw earlier, the total bundle of use values the worker can purchase with a wage will also change. So the nation is a helpful unit for analyzing capitalist production, and the nation-state regulates capitalism in many ways, from minimum wage laws, social benefits, etc. And Neil Smith, a geographer, said that, you know, the state is really important for capitalism because basically it's the most effective unit for repressing the working class. That's sort of an aside, but I think it's relevant here in this discussion. Now, there are also differences, obviously, in wages resulting from differences in productivity for the techniques and technologies and so on. So the same goods produced in different countries will have different values, as will money as the general equivalent. So this explains wage differences between also any region, right, not just nation. Because capitalism is a dynamic social relation, the wage price hides the underlying factors driving the determination of value. So therefore, we can't make abstract and ahistorical comparisons between wages and really know what's going on, right? A low wage in a country doesn't equate to poverty if, for example, there's free housing, free health care, education, and so on and so forth. And a high wage in a country doesn't equate to a higher standard of living if, for example, there's not free housing, there's not free health care, there's not free education, and you have to actually go in debt for those things. There are at least two other related implications here. One concerns trade between countries and explains capital's push for quote-unquote free or unregulated trade. This not only pits workers in different countries against each other, but drives down the overall global value of labor power and, as we've seen especially through structural adjustment programs, the gutting of social provisions in those countries that have them. And a related one concerns the drive to outsource production to nations where wages are low, either as a result of colonialism and imperialism or as the result of the class struggle being more advanced there. So regarding the latter example, I mean, I think that one is China, right? I mean, a lot is made about China's cheap labor force. And obviously in the quote unquote free trade zones, there is a very cheap labor force. But a lot of China's cheap labor is because there's so many social rights guaranteed there. So in this example, China is really subsidizing lower wages for foreign capital in exchange for other benefits like, for example, technology. And with that, we're at the end of part six of the book. In the next episode, we'll begin part seven on the accumulation of capital, where Marx really starts to put all of this together. 
And in the next episode, we'll discuss the short introduction to part seven, as well as chapters 23 and 24. So until then, solidarity, comrades. Mm -hmm.